This morning we are going to continue our study in Ephesians. And so turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, those who are taking notes and using their journals, go ahead and go ahead and prepare to uh, write down these, these questions that I have for, for us and for our time of response. When Kenny is ready, I know we all are ready. <laughs> Question number one. What is the spiritual condition of all mankind outside of the grace of Christ? Eva, go ahead and sit back in the chair, please. Thank you. What is our spiritual condition? What is the spiritual condition of all mankind outside of the grace of Christ? Number two, what are the three ways we have been disobedient? What are the three ways we have been disobedient? Number three, why do believers... Christians, those who are in Christ, need to be reminded of our former state. Why do believers, Christians, the regenerate, the church, need to be reminded of our former state? You can put whatever one you want. Believers, Christians, in Christ, regenerate. Why do we need to be reminded of our former state? Really delighted in our, our message last week in finishing, in fi- finishing Ephesians chapter 1. It was such a joy to, to hear. Um, I, I can't tell you that as a, as, a, as a pastor and elder, it is such a delight to be able to yourself sit underneath the preaching of God's Word. Um, it, is, it is nice that, we have, that the Lord has given us uh, qualified men to preach. Uh, in our midst, and I think it's, it's great for all of us to hear uh, uh, different, different people preach God's Word uh, to us. How many of us have ever heard this saying, God helps those that help themselves? I remember encountered with that, that particular statement in, uh, in high school from somebody who absolutely wasn't a Christian, but tried to explain Christianity to me by using that terminology, that God helps those that helps themselves. I mean, isn't, isn't it somewhere in the Bible? I mean, we, we've heard it quoted and said in such a way as if it is authority. Now, originally, this statement came from ancient Greek text, an ancient Greek proverb. And we see it show up again in Aesop's fables, and we like to call it, in Americans, we like to attribute that to Benjamin Franklin. But it originally showed up in ancient Greek text. It sounds spiritual. It sounds, it sounds good. It sounds correct, particularly in the ears of Americans and American Christians, because we hold to this thing called self-sufficiency. 
We hold to our own personal independence and our own personal liberties. We throw out statements like, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Now, certainly there are truths in that, that a man should take care of himself and be able to provide for his family on his own. That makes sense. But is it spiritual to say that God helps those who help themselves? Is that really true? I'm going to leave you with that question as we continue this morning. So these past couple weeks in our culture, and our culture seemingly seems to be so unnerving, the things that we are reading and seeing on the media and on the news, it feels as if we see culture slipping away in a direction that we never would anticipate. And as Christians, we, we believe, or we, we're, we're starting to see, and even in the Bible Belt region that we exist, we starting to, we're starting to see and feel what it feels like to be marginalized. We see it more and more in our culture, and for some of us, that marginalization has brought about great fear. Has brought about great fear. I mean, we're, we're seeing now that if you stand up for what you believe in, meaning the causes of Christ, you have the risk of losing your job. You have the, the risk of being harassed. You have the, the risk of being marginalized, as we said before. And in some areas, even in our own country, not much less the world, areas of arrest and even fines. We are accused of things at times and we feel this is the marginalization because we get accused of something that's not even true and then we're not even given the opportunity to speak to it. Such as Christians are homophobes. So we're daily bombarded with news articles and things like this and these are some headlines that I I pulled out just from this week and the last couple weeks. It says this, Target, the store the Target store that we kind of wish would come to Statesboro, but maybe not anymore. It said this, Target will now allow the use of transgender individuals to use their bathroom of choice. Here's another one. ESPN fires Kurt Schilling, a phenomenal pitcher, used to be, after a controversial meme on transgendered bathroom laws. Here's another one. Chaos and violence erupts as California education complex opens all gender restroom. As of Friday, here's the one that came up Friday. It's a 16-year-old girl, 16-year-old high school girl is dead after being jumped in girl's bathroom. And just yesterday, eight family members dead in execution-style killings in rural Ohio. Three young children survived. Also yesterday, we've heard this, that five people were dead in in two different locations of shootings near Augusta, Georgia. And and this is just to to name a few. We wouldn't have enough time in a day to go to the sites and, 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 and bring out all that is happening in our culture and in our society. And it makes us wonder what is happening. And we get fearful. We get anxious. We get, some of us even get angry. Angry at culture, angry at governments, angry at whoever. 
And yet along with everything that's else that's happening in the world, I want us to be reminded this morning that as we read this text, that there is something deeper that has been going on. There has been something deeper that has been always going on in our culture. That the things that we see now aren't just things that have all of a sudden becoming reality. These are, these are things that have always been done. It's just now it is okay to no longer live in shame of those things and therefore must be accepted. Our culture, our world, is fallen. It's broken. And as Christians, if those who are believers this morning, you've, you've, you, you feel the tension here because you can see it. You, you see it. You see all the problems in this world, and even in your own life, you see all of these things, and you see how the, the gospel speaks into these things, but then you see how our world is so incapable of addressing those issues. Let's throw more money at it. Let's hire more cops. Let's put more cops in schools. Let's put more metal detectors out there. Let's put video cameras everywhere. Let's open our bathrooms to everybody and whoever. Let's give people more education so that they would be more tolerant of different ideas. And we're stuck here in the middle, sort of, seeing the underlying depth of what's really happening. And we feel the tension. In Ephesians 2, this morning in our text, we are going to be reminded. We're going to be reminded of the state of all mankind. Not just, not just the the transgenders and the homosexuals and the liars and the thieves and the murderers and ISIS, not just them, but the state of all mankind, our, our good neighbors, the people that we work with, those who are showing up to the ball fields this morning, those who are going and doing other things. This is all mankind. And this text gives us a perspective and context for what's happening not only in ourselves, but also in our culture. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and read this together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we come before your, your word this morning humbly, addressing the state of all mankind, and therefore help us to not misuse, mishandle, misinterpret, misbelieve what this text teaches us this morning. I pray that it would help us see the scope of the sinfulness of mankind, the sinfulness which some of us once lived. And may we be open to the greater truth and reality of what Christ has done to take what was so dead and make alive. 
Help us this morning to see your word. Amen. The only way we are going to delight and treasure in the supremacy of Jesus Christ and rest in his grace is to understand our former state. That apart from Christ, we are dead. We are dead. We are disobedient. And we are doomed. And then it's to remind believers of our former nature. To reveal the extent to, to all mankind. And to magnify and delight in the grace of our God. So as we look at this text this morning, let's let us see three points. Number one, we are dead. We are disobedient. And we were doomed. Verse number one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin. There was a man named Jeremy Bentham who lived from 1748 to 1832. And one of the many things that he did is he was a philosopher and he was considered the founder of a particular philosophy called utilitarianism, which is the meaning of uh, the meaning you go after your greatest happiness principle. And when he died, and we're not talking about this philosophy, but it kind of pulls out a little bit when you see the way this illustration is going to go. And when he died, he left a fortune to a hospital in London. But there was a catch to this hospital receiving this, this, um, receiving this fortune. That every time that the board of trustees met at this hospital, he was supposed to meet with them. That he would be there. And you're like, wait a minute, he died. Exactly. So for over a hundred years, Jeremy Bentham's remains were wheeled into a boardroom every month. Every month were there. And he was placed at the head of the board table, the boardroom table. His skeletal remains were dressed up in a 17th century garb. There was a little hat that sat on his head, and they had to take his head, and they put wax around it to make it look like a waxed figure, so he actually, they painted a face on him and everything. And in every meeting, as the minutes were read, there was a line that stated, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. As weird and as Ripley's believe it or not as this sounds, our passage shows us this morning that we too were present, but not voting, until, the God, until God by his grace has breathed, us, breathed into us and giving us life. We were spiritually dead. Whether we like this truth or not, it's still the truth that we were spiritually dead. And the consequence of sin since Genesis chapter 3 is death. And this death penalty is handed down to all of mankind. All of mankind, to everyone that is born, even to this day, is handed down this death sentence, this spiritual death. So what does he mean by spiritual death? What is this death? Well, death is the absence of life. Of course, we know Mr. Bentham was not alive there. He was dead. Death is the absence of life, and it refers to something as once was living and now dead. Funny, when we were in the, um, I wonder if this is what, um, if this was what Pastor Bill's uh, 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 passively aggressive way of making me think deeper on particular words. Um, when we were in the car riding up to Louisville, um, he made me pull out my computer. He 
and, and look up a particular word, uh, death. What does it mean in the scripture? And another, another way of thinking about that word is, is something that is not alive and never was alive, right? So like an inanimate object. So, so as much as, and as intuitive as my phone is, as, as great as chairs are, they're inanimate objects, meaning and they're dead. There's absolutely no life. So the extent of this word is not just something that once was alive and now is dead, but something that never has been alive at all. Death is a separation from the source of life. Just as physical death is the absence of life, spiritual death is a separation from all life, and life that is from God. And our spiritual death has, has put us in, a, in bondage, has put us in bondage. And I've, I got these next four uh, uh, points of bondage, uh, of spiritual death and bondage from, from, from John Piper. And so I just give him credit, but this is what he said. He says that the, these, these points are a love for darkness and a self-glorification. That in our death, we have a love for darkness and self-glorification. John chapter 3 speaks about this, that the light has come into the world and people who love darkness rather than light because their works were evil that we are in such bondage as mankind that we love darkness and we love to glorify ourselves and boast in ourselves and what we can do and what we have done. I'm reminded of this. My, my wife was telling me about some of the shows that she's been watching on Netflix and it's the cooking shows. And on these cooking shows, they'll, they put these, sometimes it's teenagers and sometimes it's not, but their number one priority is for them to say, this is how I express myself. This is how I find my fulfillment. This is how I glorify myself. All of mankind is screaming out, this is my mark, and you will listen to me. We have a love for darkness and self-glorification. Number two, we are hostile to the glory of God. The mind that is set on flesh, Romans 8, is, is not set on the Spirit, but is a mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. And if hostile to God, then cannot submit to God's laws. And if we are in the flesh and hostile to God, then we cannot please God. Number two, we are blind to the glory of Christ. Number three, we are blind to the glory of Christ. We're blind. I want to read 1 Corinthians 2, 13-14. We've been covering that so much on Wednesday nights, and we've covered it a bunch in here, that those, the things that are, are uh, the spiritual truths are spiritual, and the natural person cannot accept these things because they're spiritually discerned. But I really want to point us to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It says this, in, the case, in their case, talking about those who are veiled and those who are perishing in verse 3, it says that the God of this world has blinded them, have blinded their minds, and it keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are blind to Christ. Number four, there is a complete spiritual death, and this is what we see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And in this complete spiritual death, the two, the two realities is we're totally depraved. We're co completely corrupt in nature. Sin has affected every part of our nature. Even at our best, outside of Christ, all we can do is sin. 
even in our good works as an unbeliever, is sin before God. It is hostility before God because it does not seek to give God glory, but honor oneself. All we can do is sin. Totally unable. We're unable to please God. Unable to have saving faith in God. Outside of the work of the Spirit of Christ to regenerate us, we are unable. Therefore, we are. We are dead men walking. Dead men walking. Separated from Christ. We are dead men walking. Because we are we are void the source of life. And therefore, as verse 1 continues to say, we walk. We walk in our trespasses and sin. And we continue in our trespasses and sin. Apart from God, we are spiritual zombies. We are spiritual zombies, kind of like the the walking dead that, that walk around and don't even know that they're dead. They continue to go through all the motions in, the li- in this life, yet the very thing that they don't have is life itself. This is a sad, sobering reminder in reality that everyone apart from Christ is dead. And yet they believe they're alive. They are dead, yet they believe that they are alive. Now you tell me what kind what blindness is really there? That that is the greatest of all blindness. Talking about losing your sight would be such a horrible thing. But to be, to be blinded in this way is a tragedy. And yet it is the nature of all mankind. And the world tells us, the world tells us that we are basically good, doesn't it? The world tells us that we are basically good. And if, and if you do good and you live the, the right life and you make the right decisions, then you are going to be good. And in our culture, we want to we, we pull a little bit of a religion in there to make us even be better. But the world tells us that we are good. And unfortunately, this is not what the text teaches us. This is not what the Bible teaches us. That outside of Christ, we are basically bad. We are basically wicked. And in of ourselves, there is nothing we can do about that. We have all died. We were all dead. How have we died? The fall, Genesis chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says, For all, for as in Adam, all die. Our father, Adam, passed down to us death. And we willingly walk in that death. We are not innocent to what our father has done. We willingly walk in the sins of our father and the rebellion of our father. Our trespasses and sin, verse 1 teaches us here, they're not just the acts of disobedience that we commit, the acts haven't killed us. Our nature is sinful. That is what has killed us. Our acts of disobedience, our sinful acts, are, are, are only the fruit, the fruit of sons of disobedience. 
So we have all sinned. We have all sinned. So it's true. Yes, it is true. That we have all not sinned on the same level as others that we can pick out in society or we can pick out in, in, in the media. It's true that we have not sinned on the same level, but, but does that mean that we are still not just as wicked outside of Christ? Let me help us illustrate that. If we lined everybody up in the world, if we lined everybody up in the world on, a, on a, an embankment of a river, let's think of a river, the Ogeechee, as nasty as it is. <laughs> we all lined up, and there was a little bit of a beach, and we lined everybody up in Bullock County. Just you bullet count. Let's not include the world on this. Everybody up on this river. And, we, and God said, for you to be righteous, you must jump across this river. How many in Bullock County could jump across that river? None. Even, what about the basketball stars of Bullock County? Right? What about our, our basketball players at Georgia Southern? Some of those guys who got some serious ups, man. And they can get up there. And they jumped. Man, they jumped, or the long jumpers, right, from, from the schools. And they, they ran and jumped, maybe halfway. But in the end, what happens? Not only are they getting wet, but they're going to get some chemical disease. <laughs> they're going to get silt on them. They might, hit, they might hit one of them fallen trees. That, that is our righteousness. When we stand on a river and say, oh yeah, I can jump further. And there's God saying, none can reach the other side. All fall. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So our, 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 uh, our offense to God is not gauged upon the level of our sin, but it is gauged upon the, de the, de the degree upon whom we have sinned against, whom we have offended. It's our condition. Our sinfulness is from birth. It's not particular sins. It's not when our, even our children get to a certain level of sinning, then we're like, oh man, now this person's needed to get saved. No. It is our natures that have separated us from God that we are dead. Number two, we are disobedient. I gotta get rolling. We are disobedient. Disobedient, listen to this in verses two, going through verse one just a bit. It says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of of our body, and our mind. We are disobedience. And in our disobedience, number one, we have followed the world. We have followed the world. Now the world here is not talking about the trees and the land and the animals and the oceans, but what it is talking about, it is talking about the evil that is in the world, the evil systems, the values, the morals that are all in rebellion <clears throat> against God. These are the world's influences upon us. These are the, the values of our age. This is what Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, that, that when all the unsaved, they will, they will all assume the ways, values, and morals, and attitudes, and lifestyles of this world. Whether it is legalism, 
or whether it is hedonism, we will all assume outside of Christ the values of our world. I think about the values of our world that have tainted us, that have tainted me, that things that I think are good because our world believes it's good, and yet they are vile before my Father. To illustrate this idea of following the world is that if you were to take a step outside of your house and you just kept walking in that direction and you never turned back, how far would you get? Some of us would probably get further than others, but after a while, leaving and walking in that direction would not be good for us. And this is what spiritually the world does. This is spiritually what unbelievers do. They walk in a direction that is set before them, this path, this course that leads them to death. We follow the world. Number two, we follow Satan. Now this is a little bit harder to understand. Hard to see the the actual truth of this. This is hard to understand. That we follow Satan? That we follow Satan? The prince of the power of the air? And yet what we see here is that Satan has authority over these things. He has authority over the world and he wields those worldly systems in his hands and to his desires and to keep that blindness, that that veil over the loss. The evil spiritual forces that exist in our world that that play out in, in diabolical schemes against man and against humanity. And yet we indulge with him. How is it, how is it that every, this is that tension I was talking about for believers, that how is it that everything that was good, that God has created as good and for our joy, the most basic things of our life are now uh, and, and, and have been distorted and even destroyed by the evil one? Gender. God created us uniquely, male and female, for our good and for our joy. Marriage. God gave us the the gift of marriage for his glory and for our joy. God has given us life for his glory and for our joy. And yet in these three, these things, we want to wield in such a way and have authority over that undercuts that good and undercuts that joy. When we look at and think about sexuality, how it's been distorted by this world, how it's been distorted by Satan, how is it that these good things that God has given us for his glory and for our joy have been so put backwards? Why else would we allow such a systematic and heartless approach to destroy these good gifts of God? We follow the course of this world and we follow our father, Satan. The prince of the power of the air. Number three, we followed our sinful desires. We follow our, our sinful desires and what's in, uh, among whom we once lived and the passions of our flesh. And what we see in, in this particular pa- part of the passage is shows that you are not innocent. Meaning in those things and following the course of the world and following Satan, the evil one of this world, we have also followed in our sinful desires. Meaning you are not innocent of that sin. 
There is no such thing as Satan made me do it. It's not true. We are all guilty. <clears throat> we are all guilty. And as he writes out the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body and our mind, he is covering this full spectrum, the totality of our depravity. me, our depravity. <clears throat> To the one who literally murders someone or to the one who does churchy things to achieve righteousness before God. This is the desires of the mind that we follow our, we follow our sinful desires. So we are, we, are, we are dead. We are disobedient. Number three, we are doomed. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It just keeps building. It keeps getting worse, it seems like. That those who were disobedient in, in verse 2 are now children destined for wrath now we see in verse 3, which is what we deserve. None of us deserve any good from God, but only justice. Each sin that we have committed oozes out of our corrupt nature. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And he does not and he cannot sweep sin under the rug as we do. We deserve wrath. Spiritual and physical death. Eternal torment for cosmic treason against God. It's not just for Adam or all those who are living in Adam, but it was once for us too. Hebrews 10, verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And what we like to believe, once again, from this, I think what the world teaches us, that since, it, <clears throat> and as believers, we've kind of uh, not addressed this enough, that we believe that since this is such a universal truth for all mankind, we begin to believe that what is common is not that big of a deal. Outside of Christ, we are doomed. So the language in this text tells us something that we need to be very precise on, and we've, we've been hinting at it as we've been speaking together, that we have to be precise. We have to be precise in what God has done for us in chapter 1, all the spiritual blessings and all the things that have been put into work by the gospel and what God has done is what we talk, heard about last week in verses 15 through 23. And that God has always been working, as we see in this passage, and what we saw in verse chapter 1, is that what we see is that God has always been working to unravel the curse of sin and death. And here's how I know, because Paul is speaking to the church to Christians, to believers, to those who are in Christ. And in particular, he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, a church filled mostly with Gentiles, Gentiles who knew the destruction of sin, knew the pain of sin, knew the pleasures of sin, and yet its destruction. 
And when we are also reminded as well in the same way as they, by the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 1, you were. Verse 2, you once walked. And last he says, we all once lived. And the language there is very important for us to understand, understand is this, is that for the church and for those who are in Christ, this was our former state. We were past, meaning it is gone. It's no longer the same. It's no longer there. But now, oh, Church, this is, this is now what we once were. Sin and death are no longer our identity. They are no longer your master and it is no longer your end. This is a sweet, sweet reminder for those who are in Christ of God's great grace toward us. How often should we, should we look at this stuff? How often should we look at verse or chapter 2? Is this something we should look at every now and then? No. It is the essential part of the gospel message. Therefore, each one of us need to preach this message to ourselves daily. Daily. That this, praise God, this is what you once were, but not anymore. It's why we, we take this language and we interwove it into our music. It's why here at Sovereign Grace we want it to be a part of our DNA. That we are not perfect, but we cling to the one who is perfect. Christ. It's why we can sing, although we haven't sang it, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. All I have is Christ, right? I think, I mean, I'm thinking all these songs that are just coming through my mind. We're reminded of this reality and we preach it to ourselves daily. Why do we need to remind this of our, to ourselves? As Christians, why do we need to remind this to ourselves? I have a couple reasons. Number one, we need to be reminded because we are so short-minded. We need to be reminded because we're, we're so short-minded that even though we're, we're Christians and we're indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're sealed by the Spirit to a glorious inheritance. We're given a, a wealth that is beyond the, the comparison of this world and the rich spiritual blessings of God and by His grace. And yet, and yet, the stench of this former death still lingers. Like every time they rolled Jeremy Bentham into the boardroom, the stench still lingers. We need to be reminded. We're short-minded. We still dwell in the flesh. But the reminder of our short-mindedness is to tell us that we, the flesh no longer has power over you. That you're no longer in bondage to, to the flesh. You don't have to give into it anymore. It's no longer your master. It is so easy to forget our former nature. It's so easy to forget our former nature and to believe my identity of death 
is so easy to forget it. We're so short-minded. We want to think in, in some way or somehow that we're good and that we were good. And yet, it's not true. We're short-minded. Number two, we need to be reminded that death is no longer our identity. I hinted at it in the first one. We, we remember or remind ourselves of our spiritual death, that this is who we once were. And in that, in that reminder of who we once were, it is to, to ta- teach us and show us that we're not to stay there, that we're not to sulk in it, that we're not to believe that we're not forgiven by God, but we are to delight and treasure in Christ more and more. I've said this to you all, and I'm going to continue to say this to you, that the mark of a maturing believer is one who remembers the gospel in such a way that when they sin, they run to God, not from God. That we run to God and not from God. So it pushes us even further, that that if death is no longer our identity then let us not delight in the things that smell like death. Brothers and sisters, what are you delighting in that smells like death? And as Colossians 3 tells us in verses 1 through 10, you can see it there, it compels us to put those things to death because that is where you once walked and no longer. We remember our former state and our new position in Christ and we pursue holiness and sanctification because that is the work of the gospel. Number three, we need to be reminded that our, that our Savior is, that our Savior is and has never been you or me. We need to be reminded of this because we need to be reminded that you are not your Savior. That you are not your Savior because we were dead. You could not save yourself. My phone cannot come alive by itself. I must put my thumb on the phone thumbprint, and if it works, it'll turn on. That dead is dead. You could not save yourself, and you still cannot save yourself. It is only in Christ alone do we stand this day. This is what we glory in, church. This is why we sing. This is why we submit to the preaching and teaching of the Scripture. This is why we humble ourselves before one another and love one another. Because you are not your Savior. Jesus is. We need to be reminded that we are not the Savior. And number four, we need to be reminded of his all-sufficient grace. And this is something we're going to address in the next coming weeks as we continue in chapter two. You see, sayings that we talked about earlier, that God helps those who help themselves, is completely false. And I hope you've been able to see that in the text. Because you and I are completely unable to help ourselves. We were in a state in such a way we were completely unable to help ourselves. Ourselves, and you have never been able to help yourself outside of Christ. Brother and sister, if you want to be free this morning, trust in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His grace. 
that He alone can save you, that He alone can rescue you. Trust in Him. Do you see now how a right understanding of our former nature and state will cause you great delight and joy in Christ? If you do not rejoice, I heard this last week too at T4G, I think Kevin DeYoung might have said this, but, but if you do not rejoice in the grace of Christ now, because of these realities of what God has done in your life and taking something that was dead and dry and breathing life into it, how do you expect to rejoice in His grace for all eternity? And the answer to that question is you won't. Unbelievers, this is not your state. It's not a past tense for you. But it is a present reality that you are blind to your nature and to your death. And death is your identity. Death is your identity. You are blind. You think you're alive this morning, but you are blind. Your master is death. And you still believe that you are your own savior. You, per, you, you pursue things that you think will satisfy and gratify you and give you joy. Things of the world, following the course of the world. The prince of the power of the air. Acting as sons of disobedience. Feeding the flesh. But this morning, praise God, that maybe the Holy Spirit is working in such a way to bring you and draw you from darkness to light to bring you from life or from death to, to, to life. To bring you from following the course of this world to now following Christ and pursuing Jesus. If, if that is the state of you this morning in which you wish to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, do so. It's as simple as being obedient to the call of the Holy Spirit right now to repent of your sin and turn and trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, for the rest of us, part of the church, you see behind us, we're taking the Lord's Supper. And we're taking the, the Lord's Supper. May this be a, a deep reminder for all of us that the death of Christ is what produced our life. That we were dead. And yet in the death and the resurrection of our Savior, the bruising and breaking of His body, the spilling of His, of His blood was to achieve and bring about life. To give grace that we can be saved. That is which we celebrate this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us now in our helpless state. Help us to understand the depths and the, the reality of our sin and our sinfulness. That, oh, the more that we may rejoice in Christ. That we may breathe deeply His grace and breathe deeply the, the truth of our salvation in Christ. That as a church, that is the truths by which we stand. 
the truths that we, we humbly engage our culture with and our world with as we share the gospel with them, that we were once like them. God, you are to be praised and you are to be magnified greatly from taking what was dead and wretched before you. And in your justice, we deserve wrath. And yet by your grace, you poured that wrath on your son so that your wrath may be satisfied on on our behalf and so that we can be called sons and daughters of God and no longer sons of disobedience. So I pray now that as we sing and as we receive the Lord's Supper and as we respond to one another and respond to the preaching of your word, O oh God, that you would be glorified and magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.